This is a Federal News Network podcast. The only thing more numerous than the number of commercial cloud services providers is the number of ways to buy from them. Now, the General Services Administration has dubbed a blanket purchasing agreement for cloud services with the name Ascend. Is GSA rising to the occasion? We get one view from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. Tell us about Ascend and what are they trying to accomplish here, and is this good or bad for the vendors? Tom, what GSA is trying to accomplish here is putting together a set of very flexible blanket purchase agreements that aren't contracts, new contracts in and of themselves. They're based on existing, in this case, multiple award schedule contracts, which the agency believes will allow them to provide a new level of flexibility to tailor solutions specifically to different customer needs. In talking with GSA officials about what's now known as Ascend, they had feedback apparently from agencies that said what they didn't want is an out-of-the-box cloud solution. They wanted something that they could tweak and be uh, adjusted to be their own. So GSA is trying to meet that stated need through Ascend. And from that standpoint, you understand why they're doing it. Customer agencies come and say, we don't want an out-of-the-box solution. Uh, GSA says, hey, we can put together a blanket purchase agreement uh, that allows you to customize things. We can work with you on that. So there's a role for the agency. Contractors, however, I think are going to be left scratching their head going, another one? Because as you pointed out in the intro, uh, there are many existing ways to acquire cloud services today, some of which have their own degrees of flexibility. Ironically, uh, the GSA schedule is one of those, and the BPAs are going to be based on contractors' GSA schedule contracts. So maybe this is a little added extra piece of work to get the BPA. But if a customer agency is looking for a tailored solution today for cloud, they can get it. I guess the idea is that GSA, through setting up Ascend, is going to provide a storefront that makes it a little more obvious for agencies to know, hey, you can get it, and you can get it here. Does the BPA, it covers the GSA schedule contractors, is that pretty much the entire cloud industry as we understand it available there in the first place? Well, I think that's a reasonable question. Certainly the number of cloud solutions on the schedules is very robust and wide. I'm not sure that it's going to take in some of the specialized DOD requirements, Tom, particularly those that have high-level certifications for security, but there are a lot, it may, I just don't, haven't gone into all the detail with GSA, but there certainly will be a number of cloud options that customer agencies can access via Ascend. A word of caution to contractors, just because you have a GSA schedule doesn't mean that you will automatically be added to the Ascend cloud BPA. You're actually going to have to compete for that. GSA is going to send out an RFQ. You want to look at that carefully, understand it, both in terms of capabilities and in terms of pricing so that you're competitive on all fronts. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the fact that the bonanza of spending related to COVID seems to be stalled. That railroad has kind of hit the end of the tracks. There was that $10 billion bill, but it's all tied up in politics and 
competing views now. That's right, Tom. You know, we saw Congress before they left last week try to put together a $10 billion COVID relief package, a a new round uh, of COVID relief funding, if you will. Uh, while there are people in the in Congress who believe that another round of COVID funds are necessary, a lot of people, I think, were left scratching their heads. Folks are going back to work. We still have outbreaks here and there, but they seem to be manageable. People are going back to the, to the jobs they had, so they don't need the paycheck protection assistance. In fact, employers are are looking actively for people to come back into the labor force. I had a conversation last week with people in the Commonwealth of Virginia. They believe that they have 300,000 jobs that can be filled by people who at least temporarily left the workforce due to COVID. Uh, At the same time, the $10 billion that Congress was going to pass, almost none of that, Tom, was new money. It was simply going to reprogram money that Congress had previously set aside for COVID. And that's kind of an other interesting part of this. Months ago, a year ago, Congress sent out a couple of different tranches of COVID funding and directed agencies, everybody from the SBA to HHS to Commerce, other agencies to spend COVID funds. And the reality is that billions of dollars of this money has never made it into the markets, never made it into the hands of either small businesses or others for whom it was intended. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. One is, you know, it's bureaucratically difficult to get all that much money out. Uh, Two, it's difficult to get the message out to the people who are the intended beneficiaries past a certain time frame. So, when Congress passes this legislation that has big numbers attached to it, it's worth looking, I think, down the road to see what actually got spent, because I think a lot of it just sits there unallocated. Uh, this was really an attempt for Congress to reallocate something. It faces a very problematic future, Tom, even when Congress returns from recess. And this points to the need for contractors to retain that capability to look beyond just the program side of government and understand the budget and money flow side of it so that they can match what they understand of their agency customers' programmatic needs with where the budget actually is and maybe guide customers, hey, there's money here that you could use for this, the consultative idea. Right, and and that's true. I've talked to some of my colleagues in this business about working particularly with small firms to pursue previously provided COVID money that's just sitting there waiting to help small firms for on a variety of different platforms. It's tough getting people's attention to say, hey, you know, you ought to talk about this, but it's even tough getting the long-term attention of some of my colleagues to say, let's get organized, let's talk about this, uh, get the message out. You know, here we are in April, things are warming up. COVID numbers, thankfully, are down. People's minds are somewhere else. And yet, uh, if you wanted to take advantage of some low-cost funding for your business or some other type of program, there likely is COVID-related money still there for that. And before we let you go, your weekly newsletter has a philosophic side of Larry that we often don't hear about. 
and it's titled, Sometimes There Are More Important Things Than Government Procurement. Just give us your thoughts in 60 seconds there. Tom, we're in the government procurement world, but people in the government procurement world, I find, are exceptionally uh, well-educated and very dedicated and savvy to their missions. But I think we all know that we're part of a larger world that has missions that are, dare I say it, larger than government acquisition. There are a lot of things happening internationally and nationally right now. And what I'm writing about this week is, let's, let's take a pause. This is a good time of year to take a pause, look around, see what is happening to us as a community, the the voices that are trying to tear people apart, the bombs and missiles that are trying to tear people apart. Maybe it's time to come back and reform our communities so that we actually can more effectively do our day jobs. Uh, I think it's important to know we live in a larger world. We have responsibilities to that larger world, just as we do to our daily routines. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.